I say this all the time, but it's hard to know a moment in history when you're in it. Because right now, we are in one of the most dangerous, destructive, problematic eras in all of American history. This weekend in both El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, not only were 30 people killed, but we had the deadliest hate crimes against people because of their race since 1921, since the Tulsa massacre. You and I live in the age of the deadliest hate crime in 98 years. That's where we are right now. Today I'm going to tell you what we're going to do about it. I'm going to speak from the heart, no script. I just want you to hear and feel my passion, and I'll give us some direction, all right? Let's dig in. This is Sean King, and you are listening to The, the, the Breakdown. travel and speak around the country, I get a lot of questions, but I think the question that I get the most is something that I answer every day. If I'm out walking on the street, if I'm speaking at an event somewhere, I think this weekend I probably got asked this question at least half a dozen times. And when people ask it, they mean it. They're, they're looking for answers and insight and direction. And the question I get the most is some version of this. Sean, I agree with you with how problematic and dangerous and destructive our country is right now, from police brutality and mass incarceration to bigotry and open racism and white domestic terrorism. Sean, I see what you see. Now, what do we do about it? Or the question comes like this, Sean, what can I do about it? Not me. What can the person do about it? People want to know. Like, and I think that's you. That's why you're listening right now is you need and want to know exactly what you can do with your life to make a difference here. And today I'm going to talk for a few minutes about how angry and bothered I am about where we are as a country. But I'm also going to unpack and explain what I want us to build together. And it's not something we can build in a day, not a week or a month. It's going to take us months to build it. I think it's going to be the hardest thing we've ever done. And yet I have hope that we can do it. And I need you to latch on to that hope because this hope is going to fuel us. It's going to fuel our efforts. And it's going to, it's going to be required because it's going to be an uphill battle. I say this all the time, and if you listen to the podcast, you'll be tired of hearing it, but I say it from the perspective of a historian. It's just hard to know a moment in history when you're in it. A good friend of mine, a brother named Charles Jenkins, uh, messaged me on Instagram this morning, and he asked me, he said, Sean, are we in the 60s again? And it's funny that he asked that. I have a book that comes out in January, and in my book, I answered that question and I get that I get that all the time like some version of Sean it, it feels like we're going back in time it feels like we are in the 50s or 60s or 70s again and what people mean when they say that is 
I thought we had grown past such violent racism and bigotry. I thought I thought we were better than that. I thought the the 70s were better than the 60s and the 80s were better than the 70s and then the 90s and the 2000s and here we are 2019 almost in 2020 and people felt and believed in their heart and mind that 2020 would be so much better than 1960. I mean, that is now, due to math, that's 60 years ago. And the hope, the expectation was that 2020 would be drastically better than the pain of 1960. But I need you to understand something, and it's it's the primary lesson of my book. It's the primary lesson that I teach all over the country. That's not how time works. Time does not work in an upward progressive manner where we're getting better and better, where human beings are steadily marching forward, improving day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, generation after generation, thousands of years at a time, human beings get better. It's not how it works. Sometimes we do get better. We do. And it's beautiful and exciting and temporary because sometimes we get better and then we crash and then we claw and scratch and climb out of that dip, that horrible dip in the quality of our humanity. We find ourselves in these dips over and over again throughout history. Just just go with me for a minute. If human beings were steadily getting better over time, all the way back from 10,000 B.C. until today, over 12,000 years, if human beings were steadily getting better, how do we explain the Holocaust? Because at that point in time, human beings had had 11,000 years to get better. How do we explain the transatlantic slave trade where tens of millions of people were kidnapped, bought and sold and traded and forced to work until they die? For 400 years. If human beings were steadily getting better and better and better, how do we explain that? How do we explain Rwandan genocide? How do we explain the famine in Yemen? How do we explain Donald Trump and his open bigotry? How do we explain thousands of people chanting to a wonderful American citizen, a congresswoman, Ilhan Omar, chanting, send her back, send her back, while the president of the United States bask in the glory of it all? If we're getting better and better and better, how do we explain a man driving nearly 700 miles from suburban Dallas all the way to El Paso, Texas, with an AK-47 assault rifle and slaughtering men, women, and children only because they were Hispanic or he believed they were Mexicans? He said he drove there to kill Mexicans. How do we explain that? If we're getting better and better and better. And here's the explanation. And it's the hard truth that I need you to understand. We explain it because we are not getting better. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we aren't. Sometimes society grows and it's beautiful and then it crashes. And we are in that crash. We are in that hole. We are in that dip. Not since hundreds of African-Americans were slaughtered in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. 
have we seen the number of people killed in race-based hate crimes that we've seen this weekend? This weekend. We live in the age of the deadliest hate crimes in nearly 100 years. The deadliest hate crime against African Americans since 1921 took place when a white man walked right into a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and shot up the entire Bible study, including the pastor. Now, this weekend, what took place nearly doubled that, did double that, maybe tripled that, that we live in the age, not the 60s, not the 50s, right now in 2019, you live in one of the most dangerous times in modern American history. And I need to tell us what we're going to do about it. All right? Let me break it down. Break it down. down, down, down. So listen, defeating Donald Trump is an essential thing that has to happen. And yet each of us have our very different preferences on who the right candidate is to do that and what it's going to take to beat him. And I think there's going to be plenty of time and attention spent on that. I'm focusing us on something different. And now nearly 25,000 of you signed up to be a part of what we call the Breakdown Crew, people who listen to this podcast and take our action steps with us. And we're going to continue to take action steps almost every day. We are in the process of working on several action steps already. Many of you have been calling the district attorney, Kim Worthy in Michigan, to demand that she apologize to the family and, and promise that she's no longer going to bring charges for a 10-year-old boy who was playing a game of dodgeball. That was on the last podcast, if you missed that. I'm going to focus us on something very different, and it's going to require a level of focus and energy and determination that, frankly, I don't see right now. I don't see it anywhere. And we're going to be the ones to build it. Listen, if you look around, if there's something you think needs to be happening and you look around and you give it a good look here and there and you don't see anybody doing it, it's a good sign that it's probably going to be you that needs to do it. And I want to focus us in on something and you can go right now and check it out. Go to HowWeFlipTheSenate.com. HowWeFlipTheSenate.com. I'm going to focus us for the next nearly, if I do the math right here, nearly 14 months on flipping the Senate away from conservative control. And let me explain four main reasons why I think that needs to be our primary focus. And I was excited yesterday to see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweet the very same thing, that flipping the Senate needs to be our number one priority. The presidential campaigns and debates and, and, and primaries of course, that's a mega priority, but it's going to get that time and attention. What's wild is that in the blue wave of 2018, where Democrats not only took back the House, but ended up with a 30 plus seat majority after being in the minority in the House, they took back the House, took back control in this blue wave, this national blue wave. Democrats lost even more seats in the United States Senate. And let me tell you why that has cost us so very much. It's the Senate that approves all of Trump's 
judicial nominations and not just the Supreme Court. We're talking about hundreds of federal judges that the president and the Senate have to approve. And it's not just those judicial nominations, although they are essential because they have lifetime appointments. And Donald Trump, as I said in the previous episode of The Breakdown, has appointed more judges than President Obama did in his entire first term. Again, because President Obama struggled to even get them approved. Certainly, even in his second term, he could hardly get anybody approved. And Republicans in the Senate, as you will remember, literally blocked his Supreme Court nominee. President Obama was due one, and they just refused to do it. What I'm saying is this. There are four huge benefits to us flipping the Senate away from conservatives. And the first one is this. This is the most hopeful position. If Democrats take the presidency, but don't take back the Senate, they'll get nothing done. We witnessed that in Obama's second term. Now, it's still important to have a Democrat as president, but if Democrats win in November and take back the White House, but still don't have a Senate majority, that president will still be able to do many things, just as we've seen Donald Trump do, but that president will not be able to get almost any legislation passed if he or she does not control the House and Senate. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I think Democrats are going to maintain their control in the House in 2020, and we'll fight for that. But they are down in the Senate. And if Democrats win the presidency but do not take back the Senate, they'll be able to get almost nothing done. So that's actually the most hopeful thing is that Democrats knock Trump out of the White House, but then they need to take back the Senate. But let me give you another second scenario. Break it down. The second scenario is this. What if, for some reason, Democrats are not able to win the White House? And we can talk about the myriad of reasons why that would happen. Maybe it's gerrymandering. Maybe it's voter suppression. Maybe Democrats nominate somebody that just doesn't resonate Maybe there's Russian interference. Um, maybe Trump runs an amazing campaign. And I don't mean amazing, uh, uh, you know, from our point of view. He runs a campaign that resonates with his voters and they just come out in record numbers. It's going to be hard to beat Trump in that race, no matter what. But say he wins and still controls the Senate. He will have four more years without an effective check and balance to get anything done. And here's the thing. If Trump wins the White House and conservatives still control the Senate, he is definitely, absolutely, going to be able to nominate even more Supreme Court justices. That's guaranteed in that next four-year term. If Donald Trump controls the White House and the Senate, he will be able to stock the Supreme Court and give it a strong conservative majority. He still may be able to do that even in the time he has left in this term. And we are all on pins and needles about that. But certainly, if he won another term and still controlled the Senate, he is going to have the power to stock the Supreme Court, to push forth his agenda. And if we don't flip the Senate, 
that could be the reality. That's the second reality. The first is Donald Trump loses the election, but conservatives still control the Senate. The second is Donald Trump wins the election and then Republicans still control the Senate. What we will get is four more years of the hell that we're in right now, where there's no meaningful legislation that gets passed on gun reform, on white domestic terrorism, on immigration, on the minimum wage, on health care. Nothing, no progressive reforms are going to get passed if we don't take the Senate. Now, let me tell you the third thing that is going to happen if we're able to flip the Senate away from conservatives. Break it down. Let me tell you the third benefit of us working like our lives depend on it to flip the Senate away from conservatives. And I'm talking about running in all 50 states, the most exciting, electric, energized, volunteer-heavy, donor-heavy campaigns that we've ever seen. I'm talking about us really operating like Mississippi Freedom Riders, where we are registering people to vote all over the country, where we are mobilizing volunteers. And again, fighting like our lives depend on it, because guess what? They do, damn it. Our lives clearly, obviously depend on us getting this right. Let me tell you, in Texas, Florida, and Georgia, there were three campaigns in 2018 where Beto ran for Senate, where Andrew Gillum ran for governor, and Stacey Abrams ran for governor in in Georgia. And in each of those campaigns, and I fought tooth and nail, like many of you who are listening, I volunteered, I uh, consulted and, and worked and labored for all three of those candidates to win. And Beto lost, and Andrew Gillum lost, and Stacey Abrams lost. Guess what? In all three of those states, where Beto ran, where Andrew Gillum ran, and Stacey Abrams ran, they lost. But more Democrats in all three of those states came out to vote than they ever had in the history of those states for those positions. And here's what's going to happen. In Texas, even though Beto lost, so many people came out. Again, these are three statewide elections, and all Senate seats are statewide elections. So many people came out to vote for Beto that in Houston, Congress congressional candidates won races in suburbs all around Houston that never won, all around Dallas that never won, all around Austin who had never won. Part of why Democrats were able to flip the House was because in Texas, in Georgia, in Florida, there were exciting progressive campaigns, statewide campaigns that lifted every other candidate running. In Houston, there were over a dozen black women who won judgeships all over Houston. We saw the same thing in Dallas, where because so many people came out to vote, people won city council races who never could have won before. People won school board races that that never would have won before. They won state legislature races that they never could have won before. And what I am saying is, if we fight in all 50 states to flip the Senate, we're not only going to give Senate candidates a real chance for us to be able to flip that Senate away from conservatives, we're also going to be able to give those candidates an opportunity to lift everybody else up who's running. And that's what we need to do. And let me tell you the fourth and final thing. There are many benefits 
But let me tell you the fourth and final thing that we're going to get when we work together to flip the Senate. Let's go. It's the breakdown, the breakdown, the breakdown, the breakdown, the breakdown, break it down now. This is part of what excites me most about what we're about to build. We have a chance to put women and men in the Senate who have a spine, who have values that align with ours, who are committed to not only confronting the NRA and the gun lobby, but also confronting white domestic terrorism that are committed to changing our health care system for good. We have a chance to identify candidates in all 50 states, endorse them, stock them with volunteers and donors, influence their campaign and policy. We have a chance to not just put random Democrats in the Senate. We have a chance to put courageous women and men in the Senate whose values align with ours. And that's exactly what we have in the House right now. It's what we have with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, with Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, with Ayanna Presley, with Rashida Tlaib, with Ro Khanna. It's what we have with uh, Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal. We have bold, radical men and women who are fighting for everyday people, who are fighting to increase the minimum wage, who are fighting to totally change our immigration system. They're in the House, but we need people like that in the Senate. And here's the opportunity that we have. We have a chance to recruit, campaign, and nominate, and and vote, and rally, and volunteer, and support, and donate, and fund races of candidates all over the country who we actually are excited to have represent us. And here's the thing. We're going to have to win in Louisiana. We're going to have to win in Arizona. We're going to have to win in, in, in Kansas. We're going to have to win in states all over the country. We're going to have to win in North Carolina. We're going to have to win in Tennessee. And here's the good news. If we fight in those states, we will win. But we cannot wait to the last minute. We cannot wait six months from now or nine months from now or a year from now. We have to do that now. I believe if we did what we are about to do right now, if we did that for Stacey Abrams, for Andrew Gillum, for Beto O'Rourke, that we'd be talking about Senator Beto O'Rourke, Governor Stacey Abrams, Governor Andrew Gillum. Instead, that's not what we're talking about. We need to organize now for what we want then. We can't wait to the last minute. It can't be a we can't have it all come down to a tweet on Election Day. We can't have it. We can't wait until it's too late to have urgency. If we want to flip the Senate and change it so that it is a powerful, influential group of people who actually believe what we believe and will fight for us, we have to do it right now. This is your action step for today. All right. I need everybody to not only take this step, but to tell everybody you know about what we're about to build. I need everybody listening to go right now to HowWeFlipTheSenate.com. HowWeFlipTheSenate.com. Now, from today all the way until next Monday on August the 12th, we're going to get as many people, as many hands on deck 
And we're going to not only rebuild the website that we have, HowWeFlipTheSenate.com, we're going to begin together to identify, nominate, support, campaign, volunteer, and donate to candidates all over the country. There are over 20 races that are urgent, that are available for us to have Senate seats that we can flip. And we're being underestimated in all of those places. People are counting us out. They think Democrats can't win in these places. And for me, it's not even so much about supporting the Democratic Party. It's about us being smart and organizing for our future. I want to close with this. Of course, go to HowWeFlipTheSenate.com and tell everybody you know to go there and join this and join this movement as we build it together. I believe we can organize ourselves out of the problems we find ourselves in. I don't believe there is a single problem, a single enemy, including white supremacy and white nationalism itself. If it's in the personhood of, of Donald Trump or, or Mitch McConnell or anyone else, I don't believe there is an obstacle. I don't believe there's a single thing that's impossible for us to defeat and overcome if we are organized. And if you've been listening to the breakdown, you know there are four things that we need to make change. We need people, and they need to be highly energized. And I believe we have that right now. If you're listening to this, you're already highly energized. But being highly energized is not enough. We need people, and they need to be deeply organized. That's what we're going to do with you. Not only do we need to be deeply organized, but we need to have a sophisticated plan that understands the complexity and nuance and size and scope of the problem. Our plan has to be as big and bold as the problem we're confronting. And the last thing is this, and thank you so much to the almost 3,500 of you who have already donated to the Action Pack. We need for this movement to be well-resourced. I've said it on, on this podcast. Last year was the worst year financially for the NRA in over a decade. And they still raised and spent $330 million. Do you hear what I'm saying? In their off year, they raised $330 million and spent every dime of it and more. That's more than any civil rights organization in this country. That's $28 million a month that they are spending to make sure that no change happens on the issue of gun violence and gun control in this country. They are spending over $900,000 a day, a day, every single day. That's what we're up against. And we need to be, listen, energized, organized with a sophisticated plan. But damn it, if we're not well-resourced, we will keep losing on the issues that matter. And when we build this out, HowWeFlipTheSenate.com, when we build out how we actually flip the Senate, we're going to have to outfund them. Do you understand me? We're going to have to outresource them. That's the only way that we're going to win. We have to be more energetic than they are. We have to be more organized than they are. Our plans have to be better, and we have to be competitive on how we provide the finances and resources for the things that we're fighting for. We're going to build this together. We're going to flip the Senate and put in there women and men who will actually fight against white domestic terrorism, who actually care about everyday people and are willing to stand up 
boldly the way we need them to do. Now, let's do this. I'm counting on us to build this together. We're going to be able to build it. And this is how we're going to fight back. Take care, y'all. Break it down. Break it down. Break it down. Break it down.